This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The Republican Party of Wisconsin will hold its state convention in Middleton this weekend. One thing the convention agenda is a vote on the party's priorities heading into the 2022 election. Wisconsin State Journal reports that election integrity, vaccine mandates, a ban on critical race theory, and support for the death penalty will be considered by party members. Wisconsin GOP will also vote on candidate endorsements during its convention. A group of Wisconsin voters are fighting to continue their lawsuit against U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, a lawsuit that could bar Johnson from holding office. The voters argue that Senator Johnson, as well as U.S. Representatives Scott Fitzgerald of Juneau and Tom Tiffany of Minocqua, aided in the January 6th insurrection with their rhetoric, encouraging conspiracy theories online. Now, that's according to the Wisconsin Examiner. Under the U.S. Constitution, elected officials charged with engaging with an insurrection or rebellion against the government are not allowed to hold public office. Though the Republican lawmakers are looking to have the lawsuit dismissed, lawyers representing the voters say that having to debunk fake allegations of election fraud has injured the voters' right to advocate for more serious issues. Six people were injured in an explosion and fire today at a Waukesha County construction company. The Associated Press reports the explosion was so powerful that it rocked a nearby elementary school and the ensuing fire left one firefighter seriously injured. Black smoke billowed from the building this afternoon as petroleum and diesel burned inside. Explosions continued inside the Somerset Marine Construction Company after firefighters arrived. Former Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman has, quote, run amok with his probe into the 2020 election, a Dane County judge said today. Now, that comment came from Judge Valerie Reen, came today during a hearing on an ongoing case over records related to the GOP-backed election probe, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Now, those records have been requested by the liberal group American Oversight, Earlier this year, Judge Bailey Reen found the Assembly Speaker Robin Voss in contempt of court for mishandling records involving Gableman. Judge Bailey Reen says she will start fining Voss if he does not remedy the situation. Tonight, the Dane County Board will consider a resolution in support of access to abortion care. Supervisor Cecilia Castillo drafted the resolution with the help of a Madison West High School student. The resolution offers support for repealing Wisconsin state abortion ban if the landmark Roe v. Wade decision is overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. The county board meets tonight at 7 p.m. And Wisconsin Public Radio music host and former WORT volunteer has been inducted into the Folk Alliance International's Folk DJ Hall of Fame. Donathan, Dr. Jonathan Overby is the host of WPR's global music program, The Road to Higher Ground, which began airing in the mid-1990s. He was inducted at a ceremony in Kansas City, Missouri, last night. Before his public radio show, Overby produced and hosted a weekly gospel music program on WORT for more than 20 years. And now on to today's top stories. Top stories. 
When folks walk by the concrete courtyard outside the Madison Senior Center, most see a space in disrepair and assume it's a private courtyard. But the courtyard is actually a public space, and soon the city will renovate the courtyard to add more green to downtown. WRT producer Nick Wiggyhout has more. The courtyard that sits next to the Madison Senior Center, bordering Cap Center Grocery Store in downtown Madison, may be getting a makeover. The property has always been owned by the city of Madison, but has been under the care of the senior center for years. The park has suffered from lack of resources. Sally Jo Spaney is the senior manager at the city-run senior center. Um, it's been managed by the senior center for, for many years, but we don't have the resources to really take care of the courtyard in the way that it needs to be cared for, and there are Many, many updates that need to be made. There are lots of safety issues out there right now with uneven pavers and um, the trees haven't been maintained well and are diseased. In a study of the trees at the courtyard, the city found that many of the trees were unhealthy, mostly due to the lack of soil in the concrete courtyard. Spaney says that, as is, the Madison Senior Center can't use the space too often. The uneven and broken pavement is a safety hazard to the older folks who frequent the center. Spaney says that another issue with the space is that people just don't know it exists. I think it's an exciting transition because it is going to open its use up to more downtown residents and parks will list it as a park on their website, for instance, and there'll be signage saying, you know, this way to a, to a park. So people will become aware of it and I think its use will be increased and uh, it'll be a really pleasant spot for everybody downtown. Alder Mike Fervier represents District 4, which contains the courtyard. He says that turning the space into a park has been a project of his for years. Downtown needs more green space, he says, and it's hard to convince current property owners to sell their land to make space for a public park. That's why Verveer turned his eye on the Madison Senior Center Courtyard. Considering the city already owns the space, though it is under the control of the city's plan commission, he says that it's much easier to simply transfer the ownership and renovate the area. My motivation in proposing this was largely to take advantage of the Parks Division uh, budget, uh, and namely park impact fees in particular, to improve this park and main, then maintain it. The city is also taking a unique way to receive public comment on the park. Outside of the park, the city has placed a sign with a QR code that leads directly to a survey, immediately getting the opinions of anyone who walks by the space and scans the code. Verveer says that with the help of the signs, they have gotten dozens of people to participate in meetings to discuss the redesign, with over 100 responses to the survey. The city's park division is taking public comment on the space and a survey to share your thoughts is available on the City of Madison Park Division's website. The city will continue to hold public meetings on the project through July. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Transitioning to a clean energy economy can have impacts now, not just reducing emissions and keeping, keeping the global temperature from rising in the next 10 to 20 years. A new report from UW-Madison puts numbers to the lives and dollars we can save when it comes to cleaning the air by cleaning the energy sector. For more, we go to WORT reporter Cameron Constanzo. New research from UW-Madison quantifies the health costs of air pollution. The study, just published in the journal GeoHealth, 
finds that cleaning up certain pollutants in the air could prevent more than 50,000 premature deaths across the U.S. each year. So I'm Nick Mayu. I'm a Ph.D. student in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at UW-Madison. Mayu is the lead author on the article. I tried to understand what the potential air quality health benefits would be if we were to completely eliminate sources of fine particulate matter pollution from major sectors of the economy. So that's electricity generation, transportation, buildings, and industry. These include fuel combustion for electric utilities and industry, as well as highway vehicles and oil and gas production and refinement. These sectors constitute about 90% of planet warming greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. and are also major sources of particulate matter that lead to health damages. So the same sectors that we need to um, ratchet down emissions in to reach climate goals in the U.S. are also um, health-harming sectors. So there would be a lot of uh, co-benefits that would come from emissions reductions in those sectors. Mayu says nationwide removal of these pollutants could prevent about 11,000 deaths in the Midwest each year, including over 400 in Wisconsin. The emissions studied are specifically air pollutants that are shown to have negative health impacts. These are fine particulate matter, sulfur dioxide, and nitrogen oxides. The health effects that come with exposure to these are COPD, lower respiratory infections, lung cancer, diabetes, and heart disease. Along with negative health impacts comes the related financial cost. The study estimates the costs incurred through death and illness exceeds $600 billion per year. The study cites prior research that shows U.S. wind and solar deployment from 2007 to 2015 resulted in billions of dollars in air quality benefits and prevented more than 3,000 premature deaths. Reducing these pollutants in a region do not only have health benefits for that region. On average, slightly less than half of the emissions removal in a state remain in that state. Due to air movement, some states cannot reap the benefits of taking action on this issue. All regions get more benefit from nationwide action than state or regional action. The study also found that reducing particulate matter pollution from on-the-road vehicles would do the most to prevent negative health effects. There is a potential for immense harm that could happen as a result of climate change. But there's also immense benefit that we can get by taking the actions we need to reduce the impacts of climate change in the long term. And it's these health benefits from air quality improvements that really struck me as a, a salient conversation point to be able to enter the discussion. One of the benefits of this kind of these emissions changes is that you might have to wait decades for the, the total climate benefit of some climate action to take effect. But the benefit you get from improvements in the air quality begin to accrue as soon as you take the action. So you don't have to wait at all. There's no lag time between when you take the action and when the benefits start to manifest. For WORT News, I'm Cameron Costanza. It's now 6.18 p.m. And you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Birds flying and crashing into glass windows is not a new concept. But as more and more large glass buildings are built around Madison, 
it is becoming a larger issue. On this week's Isthmus on Wart, WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout spoke with Marak Mikowski, a freelance writer and instructor at UW-Madison. He is also the author of the story in this week's month's paper edition of Isthmus on Bird Safe Glass here in Madison. So, Marek, just to sort of start things off, the topic of your Isthmus article here is bird safe glass. What is bird safe glass? What sort of glass can work as a bird repellent? Yeah, so the problem with bird collisions is actually very widespread, not just in Wisconsin, but across the entire world. It's approximated that more than 300 million birds die annually from crashing into glass. Uh, The issue with birds and glass is that they see straight through it. They don't know that there's an obstruction there. And so they collide directly into it. And what happens to the birds is quite traumatic physically. Their beaks shatter. They get internal bruising. They could crack their skulls. Their wings can break um, because they're flying at upwards of 30 plus miles an hour. And so bird safe glass is a kind of glass or designs or patterns applied to glass that allows the birds to see that there's an obstruction there. And so in the case of UW-Madison, there are dot patterns or a dot grid applied to the glass so the birds can see the dots and know that glass is there. Um, Other different types of protections might be lines or metal screens uh, just to show the bird that there's something there. It's not the tree on the other side and so that they can avoid it. And so obviously, you know, birds uh, running into glass and dying is not a good thing, but your article sort of goes through some of the important ecological things that birds provide to us, which maybe we sometimes don't always talk about. Could you, do you, are you able to go into that a little bit for me? Sure. Yeah. And so I learned this by speaking by a lot of qualified people, not just at UW-Madison, but also Madison Audubon. And one thing I noticed is that the people in the space of bird conservancy are very passionate and very educated and well-informed about what they're doing. Um, And so some of the things they were telling me, uh, first and foremost, birds contribute in a lot of different ways to people who live in Wisconsin. Uh, One way that we noticed during the pandemic is during the lockdown, we had more of a focus on mental health and people were going outside and hiking. And so having more birds around you, listening to birdsong, that creates a relief for people Um, especially students who are on campus who might be stressed about finals or studying. Uh, There's another cost for birds in the ecosystem. So they disperse and pollinate seeds and they're important indicators of what's going on in the environment. Sometimes we can notice or detect atmospheric or environmental changes by studying birds and how birds are uh, evolving. For example, maybe the structure or length of their wings. And then finally, they're also important for the economy. So the cost isn't just good for the environment or for people's mental health. It's also that a lot of people travel for the sake of nature and for bird watching. And that's obviously a huge economic driver in Wisconsin. And so the state is making money because of birds. We're benefiting economically. We're benefiting in terms of research. And then we're benefiting personally. And then uh, the last one I would add, which is something that's shared with everyone I was speaking with, uh, and also personally, is that there's also beauty to birds. There's beauty to hearing bird song. There's beauty to seeing bird flight. Uh, just today, I was out at dinner on this square in Turin, Italy, and there's this little bird hopping up next to us trying to get a piece of food, and he wouldn't leave us alone. Um, and that's this kind of interaction between a human and a non-human that you don't really get um, if you have fewer birds or no birds at all, um, which obviously bird safe glass is working to prevent. 
And now the crux of your article here is sort of looking into the efforts that are being made by UW-Madison to become more bird safe. So what can you what can you sort of tell me about those efforts? So they began in July 2016 with what was called a joint campus area committee meeting. And so Aaron Williams, the planning and zoning coordinator for facilities planning and management at UW-Madison, was attending this meeting. And they're basically held so that UW-Madison can speak to community members about different architecture or planning projects so that everyone's in agreement that buildings that are going up or massive renovations aren't going to create a negative effect on the city of Madison. So it's basically the university wanting to be good stewards and good partners with the city. And so Aaron Williams was attending this meeting about the renovations at the Nicholas Recreation Center. And somebody from the Regent Neighborhood Association asked, what are you doing to prevent bird collisions with this? And Aaron Williams said, I don't know. And I have to give credit to him. He decided to research more into the topic. And that's how, kind of how all this began. He started talking to more experts in the field. Uh, he spoke with Stefan Knust, who's a leader in architecture and creating bird safe glass. And eventually what happened is UW-Madison partnered with Madison Audubon to create a volunteer program called the Bird Collision Corps. And so the Bird Collision Corps would go out and monitor to see how many bird collisions were happening at specific buildings on campus. Uh, the number of buildings has risen over time, but I think they started with 10 in spring of 2018. And so volunteers go out at dawn and they walk the perimeter of specific buildings on campus and they try to see if there are dead birds there. And if they're close enough to the building, it evidences that the bird crashed into the glass and died there. And so they're collecting these birds. And then eventually what happened is there was a bird safe glass mitigation effort applied on campus. And so this happened by applying a window glazing at Og Residence Hall. And so these are the little dot or grid patterns that you see referenced in the feature with Isthmus. And these volunteers went out again and were collecting data. And the data turned out to show that fewer birds are crashing into the glass there, which proves that this bird safe mitigation is being effective. So now I want to get into how it actually sort of works this bird safe glass. So you put up sort of just all these little dots and sort of a grid pattern and this, how, how is this enough to convince the birds that this is not something that you can fly to as opposed to say a strong reflection on the glass or something like that? Yeah, so the reflection actually might be an issue for birds because if you have a reflection, let's say of trees, convince or persuade the bird that there are trees there. Well, in fact, there's glass. Um, and that's really the issue is a bird might land in a tree, look across or see a reflection or maybe even blinded by the sun on a reflection, then it'll crash into the glass. Um, what the glazing in particular and the grid pattern does is that the bird can see that there are these little dots there, or maybe it doesn't even identify that the dots are there. I don't know exactly how it works from the bird's perspective, but the bird can see that there's something there instead of just a tree or a sky it's trying to fly to. And that's what's showing us that there are preventions in these uh, collisions. Uh, another thing that's been researched by similar citizen science efforts, which is what Audubon is doing with these volunteers collecting data. These are citizens who don't have scientific backgrounds. They don't have PhDs. They're just passionate about sustainability and conservancy. And they go out and collect data to try to further research programs because it allows them to have a lot of people on the ground to collect data. With these bird mitigation efforts, by having a dot grid, a bird can see that there's something there. They're not looking directly and seeing sky or tree. And so that's going to cause a bird to avoid the glass. And that's something that has come up in the data. 
And now finally here, so we because we can't go a week without talking about the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, they filed a lawsuit last year to fight against a city ordinance here in Madison requiring new buildings of a certain size to use this bird safe class. Uh, what can you sort of tell me about some of the issues that Will had with this bird safe class? Why, why is this lawsuit a thing? Uh, just to give listeners context, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty has previously sued to annul Governor Tony Evers' mask mandate, for example, and to force the Wisconsin expansion of the wolf hunt season before federal uh, protections for wolves were enacted. And so this seems like a natural kind of case to take up for the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. And so the firm is basically arguing for developers that installing bird safe glass or requiring or mandating um, different kinds of protectants or deterrents to bird collision would increase costs for developers. Uh, this is related to Williams' efforts at UW-Madison. So the city of Madison enacted an ordinance a few years ago that requires this. This was in October of 2020. And so any building larger than 10,000 square feet needs to use bird safe glass. And that's through the things we were talking about earlier, like the dot patterns, lines, metal screens, or other approved methods. Now, Will and its plaintiffs are arguing that there are going to be increased building costs and the market will be less competitive, and I'm quoting from their statement here, due to increased housing costs and rent. So they're saying by installing bird safe glass, we're paying more money and we're making less money. Now, I think the natural argument here for people who oppose uh, this lawsuit and don't think it really has much legal bearing is that all buildings in Madison over 10,000 square feet are going to do it, not just the developers that Will is supporting. And so it seems like the effect is going to be dispersed about among anyone who's making a building of this size. And so the argument really is economic. Now, if you take into account what some of the people from Madison Audubon have said, birds are a massive economic driver, but that's not really taken into account during the lawsuit. Two things I like to add at the end here. The first is that we're seeing more and more buildings that have um, more glass compared to stone or different types of materials for the aesthetic purposes. And so this problem isn't just about conservancy, it's also about architecture. And so the reason we have more glass is because architects, developers, people who are living and working in buildings wanna break down our division between nature, right? You wanna be inside and feel like you're outside, you wanna see the trees, you want to see the birds, you want more of a connect with your environment, which is something we certainly learned during the pandemic. But now there's more of a consciousness and there's more of an effort toward being responsible to the people we want to be closer to or to the beings we want to be closer to. And this includes the birds. And so that's why people are making efforts and this, this new law is up in order to protect birds and so that ultimately we can still be close to them and that we're not killing them, even though we want to experience more of what we call nature. I've been talking with Mark Makowski, freelance writer and doctoral candidate and instructor at UW-Madison. He is also the author of the latest story in the latest print edition of Isthmus, Grid is Good on Bird Safe Glass. You can read his full story either in print at your local newsstands or online at isthmus.com. Mark, thank you so much for uh, coming on and talking with me here today. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've got lots more stories coming up. 
we'll talk with an organization that helped bring a silver lining to the pandemic. Fermenting Wart heads to their very own Third Space over at Third Space Brewery. And Radio Chipstone explores the relationship between a mother and daughter. But first, we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back. and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Last Thursday, WORT was one of 20 organizations and individuals to win an award from the Madison Arts Commission for our work navigating the pandemic. And we're going to turn it over to WORT News Director Shelley Pittman, who attended the ceremony and spoke with some other winners. In May, the Madison Arts Commission honored the creativity, dedication, and perseverance that brought silver linings to Madison during the COVID-19 pandemic. Out of many nominations, 20 individuals and organizations won a silver lining award. WORT spoke with award winners. Here's one. Uh, My name is Veronica Figueroa Vélez, and I'm the executive director of Denard's Mirrors. We were nominated because of the impact in the community during COVID and the work that we were doing with both the school district, the youth, and the community at large throughout the pandemic. We continue to work with the schools throughout Zoom. We adapted very quick to that platform like everybody else did and continue to gather feedback and information for the kids for the Mayak mural. One of those um, murals have already been installed. There's three pieces of that mural. So if you look at that mural, all the little imagery that is in between the shapes have been done by hundreds and hundreds of kids from the school district. Um, hours and hours of collecting imagery for the kids, conversations with the kids, their drawings, their experiences, their conversations, and we're able to capture that in their mural. Um, we continue the work because, like I said, that's a three-phase mural, so we're working on phase two and three right now, as it is at the shop at Dama, and we have also been collecting more ideas from the kids throughout the year. It's very exciting to win something like this because we worked really hard through the pandemic, but we also were very worried that we weren't reaching out our community like we wanted to reach out. DAMA is known to be a very community center uh, organization and focused in like community public art. What makes our art beautiful is not the artist only, it's actually the engagement of the community and how many hands touch the murals that we make. So for us, it was a little bit of frustration of like, how are we gonna make this happen? At the same time, having the opportunity to adapt to social media and having the opportunity to you know, have people coming in and out and continue to have access to kids through the school district, despite the fact that social media sometimes was a little bit of a barrier because kids didn't wanna go online or they didn't wanna show their faces in camera or sometimes we felt kind of like, are they listening or what's going on here? But when we got the feedback and we got all the designs and all of that we were like hi they were listening because look at all this imagery that we're getting back it it was super excited to kind of see that we were still you know doing the impact that we wanted to do even though we weren't presently there at at the at the place like we've always been very physical physically there at the school with the kids 
So to us, it's very um, exciting, and it just gives us even more energy to continue to do the work. Our very first event that we hold, held um, in person was amazing over there at Lakeside, and it was like packed of people. We were really worried that nobody was gonna show up to our paint day because of the pandemic, and we were surprised with over 30 people every single day that we painted. So we will continue to do this work. We will continue to impact our community and we will continue to explore the intersections of creativity and social justice and health and wellness through the arts. And we're looking forward to that. So thank you for the award. For WORT News, I'm Shally Pittman. You've got your home, you've got your work, but everyone needs a third space. Third Space Brewing Company has quickly become one of the most recognized breweries in the state. This week on our beer feature, Fermenting Wart, resident brewer Colin Morgan gave brewmaster Kevin Wright a call to talk about Third Space beer and the state of brewing of the brewing industry. This is Fermenting Wart. This week, I sat down to talk with Kevin Wright of Third Space Brewing Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They are known for their excellent pale ales, IPAs, and some of their more creative beers, like Frog Vice. Hi, Kevin. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you very much. So I've been talking to brewers for a couple of weeks now, and I think it's really interesting to get them to talk about how they started their brewing career. So could you give me a little idea of how you got into beer, why you got into beer, and just how it all started for you? Sure. Yeah, I think like uh, like a lot of people, I started off homebrewing. Um, I, uh, I don't remember exactly how I got into homebrewing, but I know my, my parents got me my first uh, kit, like homebrewing kit, and uh, I started making making beer and the apartment and I uh, really just got more and more into the the process and the science involved in it and started thinking that it could be something I would be interested in turning into a career potentially and I also figured that homebrewing for a couple of years does does not make you a brewer so I started started looking for opportunities to get um, education and found uh, University of California Davis as a, a really excellent brewing program uh, so I signed up for that and went out there and then got my first job in the industry after that. Very cool. I feel like that's a pretty typical uh, route for a lot of brewers these days, and I was actually the same. I think that's a really cool thing that a lot of brewers started as the homebrewing level, and that's what piqued their interest, and they loved it enough that it turned into a profession, a career, and not a lot of professions today uh, start like that. Uh, so that's uh, a unique thing about brewing that I think is really cool. So what about beer and brewing is most exciting to you? What gets you to go to work every day and try to create something new? I think for me, I like the, um, you know, the challenge of trying to create something, uh, seeing all the aspects of it from, you know, idea through production to finished product, tasting it, and then, you know, the ability to tinker and go back and try to improve, um, you know, so that's, that's exciting for me from like a, a beer and recipe side. And then from a, you know, manufacturing side, I just like the, the challenges of a production environment, the troubleshooting, figuring out ways to do things better, more efficiently, more, you know, better for quality. So it's like challenges your brain in a, in a couple of different ways. The idea that you can always make something a little bit better technical and you can always learn something more. And it's not something that you're ever gonna get bored of, at least for me. So. Right. So you're, you're taking like very simple 
ingredients, agricultural products, and you're you're making something totally different and, you know, such ability to make it unique and make it your own and dial in exactly what you're looking for from really, you know, the same ingredients that are available to every brewer. So it's, it's you know, that's that's part of the fascination for me is just, you know, being able to, to take those things and, and turn them into something unique. So there's a couple of beers that I did want to talk about that are uh, from Third Space. The first one is Happy Place. That's a beer that I think a lot of people, that's the first beer that they, they associate with Third Space. Fantastic pale ale. If there was any inspiration for that beer, what was it? And are there any technical nuances to that particular beer uh, that you employ? Yeah, so that, I mean, that's, that's our, our most popular beer has been since day one. It's our biggest seller. You know, if you're going to find one third space beer somewhere, that's probably the one you're going to find. And that one, really the inspiration for that is, you know, when we were looking to start a brewery, I had been working originally, at, you know, like I said, I went to Davis in California and then I got my first job in the industry in Southern California. So I was working in California for about seven years and, you know, out there at the time, it was very, very much into the West Coast IPA craze. And so we're drinking a lot of these really amazing uh, hoppy beers, IPAs, and, you know, in Wisconsin, there wasn't a whole lot of that. And so when we started, we knew we wanted to make a hoppy beer that was going to, you know, kind of be the beer that tied most into what we were trying to do with the brewery. So we were looking for something that that had a really nice hop character, but also was really well balanced, uh, really easily drinkable, you know, something that, um, you know, it's it's a beer you can have a couple of and it's not overwhelming from a flavor perspective or an alcohol perspective. Uh, so that was, we were really trying to dial that in. Um, as far as technical, I mean, it's it's a pretty, you know, basic beer. Uh, I think we, you know, the, the malts that we use, we're using a combination of base malts to achieve uh, a specific flavor profile from the malt. I think a lot of times in hoppy beers, especially the, the malt profile can get overlooked or overdone. Uh, so it's, you know, it's clashing or it's just completely not, not there. So I think that with, with that beer, that's specifically one of the things that makes it, makes it what it is. And it's, you know, it's a subtle impact, but it's there. As far as brewing technique goes, the other beer that I wanted to talk about uh, was Frog Vice, uh, which is a fruited kettle sour, I believe. That one is, is quite a bit different from what I'd consider most people's perception of just a regular beer. What's the story behind Frog Vice and how is that brewing that beer different than just a normal ale or lager? Yeah, so that one has like a one specific inspiration, and it was it was 2018, and our team was at the Craft Brewers Conference in Nashville, and we were having breakfast uh, one morning, and basically every breakfast place in Nashville you get biscuits with breakfast, and so we're having biscuits, and in the middle of the table, you know, you got your condiments, your your honey, whatever, and there was a a jam there and it was it was called frog jam and we're like what is this frog jam and it was it was fig raspberry orange and ginger jam and we just thought it was awesome like tasted amazing like really cool flavor profile and a fun name and concept and we started talking like wouldn't it be fun if we can you know get this same flavor profile into a beer you know quickly went into uh you know bringing into acidity into it uh to give it you know uh, a better you know balanced drinkability as a beer so we knew we wanted to make it sour, and we're not set up to do any kind of uh, more traditional souring. So kettle souring was the the technique that we that we settled on, and uh, it took a couple of rounds to get the the flavor balance uh, right. 
But yeah, we really, really are happy with that beer. It's one of our uh, fastest growing beers right now as well. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah, and we had to figure out, you know, when with brewing, it's you can't just like buy, you know, couldn't just buy whole figs and figure that out. So you have to, you have to, you know, figure out the sourcing of how you're going to use different ingredients. And that took us a little bit of time to, to, to get what we what we needed to brew with because we don't use we don't use any flavor extracts. Uh, so it doesn't have any you know artificial natural flavoring in it. It's all the actual items that go in there. Very cool. From I guess this is from a brewer's standpoint, but also a business owner's standpoint, whatever standpoint you'd like to take from. What are the biggest challenges you see for breweries in the future? Um, one of the biggest challenges for all of us right now is is uh, availability of, of raw materials and supply chain. You know, you hear it everywhere with every industry, uh, but with brewing specifically, there's a couple of things that um, with the way the world is right now and the way that things are moving in the future is going to be harder and harder to access. Um, you know, and think that's things like, like malt, uh, barley for making malt. Um, and then some of the, the packaging things we rely on, aluminum cans, um, glass bottles, if you do that, our brewery doesn't, but, but a lot of breweries do. And that stuff's getting harder and harder. And the climate is getting less and less friendly to growing uh growing barley in a lot of the traditional regions that it, it has been grown in. So that's a big challenge. And all that's driving up costs. And when you're a small brewer like us, we don't have quite the economies of scale that larger brewers have. And so we really, we really get pinched on, on a lot of that stuff. So I think that's, that's the biggest challenge is, is figuring out how to make the beers that we make and, and sell them at a price that's affordable and also allow us to make a profit on it. That's that's the biggest challenge. One last thing. If there is one thing that you'd want beer drinkers to get out of your beers, uh, what would it be and why? Man, that's a good question. I think, you know, most of the beers that we make, we design them to be session is a word I think gets thrown around too much, but it's it's it fits kind of what they are. Like it's a beer where you're enjoying it, you're drinking it. My my brewing professor, you know, always talk about how as a brewer we all make our money on the the sixth beer in the six pack. It's fairly easy to get somebody to buy something once, but if they finish that sixth beer and they want to buy it again, like that's where you're going to get repeat business and that's where you're going to build your success. And so you always design a beer to be like a, you know, the six pack beer. They, they finish six pack and they want another one. So I think that's what we try to make all of our beers. Um, you know, even beers that are on the, the higher end on the alcohol spectrum, we still try to make them in a way that, you know, you're going to finish that, that six pack and you don't want to get another one. And we try to, you know, with our whole brand being the third space, um, which is you've got your home, you've got your work, but everybody needs a third space. It's kind of a place you go to gather, socialize, you know, outside of home, outside of work. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's meant to be fun, enjoyable, you know, and so our, our brand is really built on that kind of bringing people together, having fun, uh, enjoying, you know, good beers with, with friends and, and family in a, in a good environment. So, you know, that's, that's kind of what we want people taking, taking away from, from the beers when they're having them. Thanks for joining me, Kevin. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, absolutely, Colin. Thanks a lot for having me. For Fermenting Wart, this is Colin. Thanks for listening. It's 6.47 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
past couple of years have been filled with uncertainty. However, there's one thing that those of us lucky enough to be in their circle knew for sure. Liz Wormkrantz and her mother Ellen shared a powerful love. On Monday, or on May 11th, Ellen Wishmeyer Wormkrantz suddenly passed away from cardiac arrest. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields shares this archival audio in honor of Mrs. Mrs. Ellen Wishmeyer Wormkrantz. I have a 14-year-old daughter, and she's 14, so she's starting to get a little sassy. And um, my mom and I were talking about that a couple weeks ago. And then a couple days ago, she called me and said she found a couple letters that I had written her when I was a teenager. And she was like, I don't know if I should send them to you. They're pretty bad. And so I kind of had to work on her to get them. So she finally sent it to me. And I guess she kept them. There's a date on the top that's in her handwriting. So obviously when she got the letter, she knew to tuck it away and save it for later uh, blackmail or embarrassment. I don't remember exactly, but I think first of all, I thought, well, someday I'm going to show this to her and then she's going to see that I wasn't so bad as she thought I was. Because when she has her children, she'll find out, you know, that it's not all happiness and whatever. Some of it I probably thought, was I really like that? Should I have done that? Maybe You know what I mean? I was questioning myself, too. So I think I just, so I think I was hurt a little bit from the letter when I first got it. And I just tucked it away. And here it is. I just found it 30 years later. Mom, I'm writing this only because you don't seem to care enough to listen and try to understand the things I say to you. Maybe by having this in writing, you'll reread this and come to some conclusions that have been needed to be reached for quite some time. You need to come down off your pedestal and quit trying to prove to me again and again that you are the mother and have authority here. I know that. Don't fabricate things and expand the truth only to show me your power. That's pointless. It only makes me rebel. She used to drive me crazy sometimes. When she was in eighth grade, you couldn't chew gum, but then they would have a gum day. So one day... They had a gum day, and I, it was right after Halloween, and I had gone out and bought a bag of 101 gumballs because, of course, it was on sale. And so she decided she wanted to take the whole bag to school. And I said, no, you can't. What are you going to do with 101 gumballs? I knew trouble was lurking in the horizon if I let her do that. And she followed me around the house begging me to be able to take this bag of 101 gumballs. She followed me for two hours. I was on the phone and she kept saying, I have to take them. You don't understand. I have to give them to my friends. I have to do this. I have to do that. And I thought, I just can't back down. So I just held my ground. But she did this for like two hours. And finally, she just absolutely stopped and stopped asking because she knew I wouldn't you know, go ahead and let her take 101 gumballs to school. So she was always doing a couple of crazy little things, you know, that I always had to watch out for her or whatever. But not that that has anything to do with the letter, but that's Liz. Lately, I've come to know you as no more than a schizophrenic. One day you'll be great, a person I truly want to be with, and the next you'll be some power-hungry person looking to get me any way you can. You need to start being proud of me for the things I do accomplish instead of always overlooking that to be disappointed in the things I just missed. I am who I am, and you can't change that just by taking away my privileges after 6 p.m. Maybe that'll add to my knowledge and give me time to study, but it's taking away from our relationship. What it all comes down to is that you need to make a decision between our relationship or your quest for power. One must go. Something must have happened right before it, and I must have said the 6 p.m. was probably just for that one 
infraction. I mean, I didn't make her stay in or not do anything after 6 p.m. her whole life. You know, I would do it for a couple weeks or something like that. So, um, I, no, I tried not to back down because I knew then I'd lose all, all my control if I had any. If you ground me, I certainly won't be eager to please you. That's so far from it. You need to lower your expectations of me because obviously I'm not the person to fulfill them. I'm sorry I can't be and I won't be. As much as I love you, I won't totally alter myself and everything I've become just for you and just to fuel your desire to prove things to me. Just be my mom and my friend. Don't always make me feel like so much less of a person. Who cares if I want to talk on the phone? Who cares about a lousy C- in a very difficult course? That when compared to a relationship that is slowly but surely crumbling between a mother and a daughter doesn't seem as mon monumental now, does it? I think she just, it was, it was in March, and it was coming to the end of her senior year here in high school. She really thought that she was a grown-up at the end of her senior year because she was going to college. And she really, really resented that I could still have rules or whatever that she had to follow. And they weren't, they, I mean, you know, it was just, they weren't, I didn't make her stay in every night till you know, at six o'clock or anything like that. It was just normal kid rules, you know. I'm sorry, but I don't feel like studying. <laughs> <laughs> I would have before, but I resent you now for making me feel like crap so much. I no longer wish to please you. This is my handwriting. gets a little crazy here too. I've ruled that out. Sorry, I can't be the daughter you want and need. I'm sorry you can't take me and love me as I am. Think of how bad I could be, and then, once again, look at me with an open mind. And give me a chance to be myself, the person I want to be. That's all that matters in the end. Give me my freedom. I'm not a child, and you aren't God. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I may not always know what's best for myself, but I'll learn more learning things for myself and not following your book of rules for life. I need to be myself, not you. I knew she wouldn't. she didn't mean what she said. You know, as a mother, I mean, I knew if she stopped and thought about it, because I was glad she could say whatever she wanted, and she did. And I knew she didn't, if she'd see what she actually wrote, she would realize she didn't really mean that at some point in her life. You know what I mean? <laughs> My mom's a wonderful person. Like, she's great. She's a great mom. She was a great mom. She is a great mom. And I know she did you know, the best she can, and I had a great childhood. I love her, we have fun together. She's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so yeah. Liz is a wonderful girl, she's a very likable person, I think, and she is very kind, and you know, that's why I knew she would live to regret this letter. And she apologized to me for it, laughing, of course, but. <laughs> you know, I have to keep reminding myself that she's 46 years old and that she, has her own life, and she reminds me of that also, because I do try to tell her what to do, because a mother always thinks she has another chance to get her child on the right track. I think it's just a mother. You, you, you want your child to do the best, and you want them to go in a certain way, and, you know, and they go a different way, and so you're there to help them. Ha-ha. <laughs> I have to be careful what I say, because my mother will probably hear this. <laughs> I think partially, like having read that and remembering how frustrated and mad I was, like, it's hel helpful to think, like, 
these little passionate outbursts of my kid, you know, they may seem over the top and ridiculous sometimes, but like they're coming from true feelings and maybe just like trying to wade through the ridiculousness or the drama and, and get to the heart of what's wrong is a good, good idea. And I think I try to do that, but this kind of drove it home for me. So, and also just to kind of give her a break and not like come down on her every time she's a little bit snotty or dramatic. <laughs> so far, my kid has not said many of those things to me. I mean, she has her moments, but I haven't gotten any letters. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Cameron Costanza. Special thanks to feature contributors Colin Morgan and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slate. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, remember, you can always listen, in to, listen to the WORT Local News as a podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.